Well, good morning. Good morning. I, uh, I assure you the children do like Sunday school. <laughs> now, um, uh, so uh, some of you realize there was a marathon today, and it, it might have uh, delayed some of you a little bit, but uh, I, I, think, I think most everyone's here now. If anyone comes in late, it's probably why. We were almost late, so uh, no. Uh, so this morning, uh, what I'd like to do is, uh, we're, we're done with Matthew, but I would like to uh, take a look at a few different passages today on the topic of baptism. Um, maybe last week, as we were working through the Great Commission, you thought, uh, you thought that uh, maybe, uh, maybe that Great Commission deserved a little more time. The Great Commission, by the way, that's a, the last passage in the book of Matthew where the Lord Jesus instructs his church to go out and make disciples and baptize them and teach them to obey all that he's commanded. And if you thought we could have spent a little bit more time there, you're right. And uh, what the next sermons will be before we get to our, our next book are really they're going to be extensions coming out of that great instructional passage there at the end of Matthew's gospel. And so in the coming weeks, uh, today, we'll take a look at baptism, but in the coming weeks, what does it mean to be added to a church? And what does a disciple look like? And what is the message that they're sent with? What are some of the elements of the teaching that Christ calls us to be, uh, to be obeyed? And what is it that Christ wants us to do? And, and what does a disciple look like? So in the coming weeks, that's where we're going to be uh, touching on. Now this morning, we're not going to be in any passage in particular uh, we're going to be in a number of passages briefly and see what their teaching is on baptism. But before we do that, let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would be with us this morning, that you would help us, Lord, to uh, help us to see the truth of your word. I pray that you would edify your people. And that we would see, Lord, what it is that you require. Help us to understand baptism better. And Lord, I pray that you would uh, hinder any distractions. That you would give us clarity of mind and in thought. That you would help us to understand your word. And that you would glorify your son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Lord, please help us this morning. Amen. People tend, have a tendency to take doctrines that are complicated or sometimes disputed, or in our time maybe doctrines that appear traditional or ritualistic, and there's a tendency to take those and put them into secondary or, or third categories where they really aren't that important. And sometimes you can do that. You can be born, be born again, live, die, and never for five seconds think about superlapsarianism or infralapsarianism. And your Christian walk is not going to be hindered or lacking in the slightest. So there are some doctrines in that category. There's a few. But baptism isn't one of them. And the only reason I say this is because my concern is that baptism isn't given the important position it should hold in our lives. Because when we talk about baptism, we are not talking about 
some ritual or tradition. And we aren't talking about some peripheral, unimportant thing. And when we talk about baptism, we are talking about the death of Christ for our sins. When we talk about baptism, we are talking about the, the death, burial, resurrection, and Jesus' triumph over death and hell. We are talking about our assurance of ultimate victory in Christ. That's what baptism is about. And so underneath everything we'll say about it is the magnificent gospel of Jesus Christ. Baptism is the symbol of the gospel and what that gospel does and how that gospel is applied. Well, it's not a small incidental thing in the life of a believer. Baptism really is a big deal. And so this morning we're going to leap from baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit Matthew 28, 19, and take a look at various points and passages about baptism. And I, I think the most fitting place to start, I believe, is our church's statement of faith. Now for those of you who are members, when you became a member of the church, you would have read this statement and in it what we believe according to Scripture about baptism. And this is what you would have read. Baptism is an ordinance of the Lord Jesus, obligatory on every believer wherein he is immersed in water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit as a sign of his fellowship with the death and resurrection of Christ, of remission of sins, and of his giving himself up to God to live and walk in newness of life. And so we'll start here and we'll work our way out to 10, maybe 11 points. So it's going to be a good day for note takers. Number one, baptism is commanded by Christ. It's an ordinance of the Lord. That means He ordains it. And it's obligatory. But really, you don't really want to know what our statement of faith says or what I say. You want to know what the Bible says. And of course, the clearest verse on this is Matthew 28, 19, where Jesus commands the church to multiply and to make disciples and inseparable from making disciples is baptizing them. The command to make disciples includes a command to baptize because if you don't baptize, you, you can't make disciples. Every disciple must be baptized. It's, uh, it's like if I tell my son, go clean your room making your bed. The command there is to go and clean his room, but guess what? He can't do that if he doesn't make the bed. That's my expectation of what a clean room is going to look like. Go clean your room making your bed. Go make disciples, baptizing them. It's the same thing here. Jesus is giving his expectations for disciples. And one of those expectations is that they're baptized. The believers started doing this in the beginning of the church at his command. And we will continue to do it until the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Until he comes back, everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must be baptized. Number two. And this goes without saying, but baptism is identifying with Christ and thus his church. Baptism is identifying with the church. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Now, here in this verse, Paul is writing to the church about the church. In Corinth, they were having a rough go. 
Right? They were fighting with one another constantly. They were always trying to one-up the other in, in spiritual giftedness. The church was branching into factions behind their favorite preacher, and the whole thing was a mess. That's the context of 1 Corinthians. And prior to this, in uh, prior to this verse, verse 12, 13, Paul has been explaining how the church is one body and it's not to be divided. It's not to be segregated into your super Christians over here and then your lesser Christians over here. And one of the ways Paul does this is by reminding them that they are, in fact, members of one body. Right? The hands and the feet and the eyes and the ears are all together one and no member should exalt itself above the other. Because they all work equally together to be a body. You cut a hand off, you, you don't have a new body, you just have a hand. And we're going we're gonna to take up working together equally to be one body, Lord willing, next week. But then he tells them this, their mark of belonging to this body is baptism. 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen it says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And we were all made to drink of one spirit. And so baptism is the expression of your being grafted into the universal body of Christ. And this grafting is modeled by joining a local body of believers. Baptism is declaring that I am a Christian and part of a church. And if you were to go back throughout history, especially into the early, early uh, church, the Paul and the other apostles, there would be no such thing as a Christian who was not both baptized and part of a church. They just don't exist. Not then, they don't exist now. A true disciple, if it's physically possible, sometimes in rare cases it's not, but if it's physically possible, he or she should be baptized and join a church, either formally or informally, but they ought to be part of a church and they ought to be baptized. Otherwise, they're living in disobedience to Christ. Number three, the name. They are to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That, again, is right out of Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. But maybe you know your Bible quite well. And you're saying to yourself, wait a second. In the book of Acts, many verses, people are baptized in Jesus' name. Right? They're baptized in Jesus' name. Not in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So which is it? Is it the name of the triune God or is it in the name of Jesus? Well, I think the question may risk missing the point. And my answer to that would be, well, both. Because... You see both examples in Scripture. But the problem begins to creep in, and there is a problem, when you hear someone say, in Jesus' name only. Why is that a problem? Here's why. Baptism is not carried out on our authority. It is done in the name and authority of God. And when something is done in someone else's name... That, that person, and in this case the divine being, God, must be accurately represented. And so if you're baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, or in Jesus' name, both are valid if 
By in Jesus' name, it is meant the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. Not the singular name of God who is not three persons. Or Jesus, the physical offspring of God who hails from the planet Colab. Or Jesus who was the great prophet. But Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the creator of heaven and earth. If you get the name of God right, if you get whose name it is, if you get God wrong in baptism, you're not being baptized with the authority of God. For a baptism to be correct, it has to have a right recognition of who God is. Ephesians 4, 5. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Number four. Baptism is a symbol of our union to Christ. And not just our union to Christ, but specifically our union with Christ in really in the gospel. This is the most important aspect of baptism as to, to what it represents. And the key text for this verse uh, for this is Romans 6, 3 through 4. So if you can turn there, Romans 6, 3 and 4. Baptism is symbolic of our union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Romans 6, starting in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were, there, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So baptism is a public picture of what happens to every believer when they call upon the Lord and are saved. It pictures your salvation. I mean, think about it. Even though the whole process only takes a few seconds... There's a lot happening in those seconds. For one, you're baptized into his death. When you go under the waters of baptism, you're being submersed. It's symbolic of you being united with Jesus in Jesus' death that happened 2,000 years ago, which is exactly what Paul says a few verses later in verse 8. He says, you have died with Christ. If you are a Christian, you have died in the past, have died already in Christ. You see what the Bible is saying? When Jesus died on the cross, there is a sense where you in Christ died with him, in him. The, the flesh, the part of you that opposes God and, and fled from Christ is delivered a mortal blow. And so when you go into that water, you are saying... I have died and am buried in Christ. I am buried in Him in baptism into His death. That's the picture. Just as we go under, we go under the water just as Christ went into the ground. And after that, just as Jesus was raised from the grave, you will be raised. And this is what's proclaimed when you're lifted out of the water. It's a, it's a picture of your rising from the grave just like Jesus rose from the tomb. You died with him, you were buried with him, and you will rise like him. And when you come out of those baptismal waters, you are proclaiming publicly and are yourself being reminded that you are destined to the resurrection of life. And that new life begins not when you die, because you've already died in Christ, and so you will never die again. I mean, sure, you'll close your eyes here, and your body's going to stop 
Your heart will, will cease to beat. But if you're a believer, you are not destined to die. Right? What does Jesus say? Those who believe in me will never see death. And you pass from life to life. Like when you, when you go to the funeral of a Christian, do you know what you're seeing? You are not seeing a person who is down in the casket who is dead. If they have put their trust in Christ, you are seeing an individual who right now is alive and is alive in a world that is realer than the one you're existing in right now. And if they could look back on you, the only thing they could look back on would be with pity that you're not there with them. When a Christian dies, that happened already. 2,000 years ago in Christ. So that when you close your eyes here and are absent with the body, you are present with the Lord because you have died and were raised in Christ. Baptism dramatizes this newness of life. Closely related to this is point five. Point five. Baptism pictures the cleansing of our sins. Baptism pictures the cleansing of our sins. 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. You don't have to turn there, but 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, when the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with the angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Baptism corresponds to our salvation, not as dirt removed from the body, but as being cleansed from sin so that we have a clear conscience before God. And the picture of this, which might surprise you, Peter tells us it's Noah's Ark. Have you ever thought of Noah's Ark as relating to baptism? I mean, there's a lot of water involved, but is that where it ends? Noah's Ark does relate to baptism. It says so right here. And you say, well, what's the picture? The waters that would flood the world come up from the ground. They come down from the heavens, and they fill the earth in Noah's day, and they kill every living, breathing thing. If you're familiar with the story, you know why. The Lord was furious and was grieved by all of the sin in the world, and so he puts an end to it. The waters are his agent of destruction that kill every living thing. Breathing being, anything not on the ark, dies because of the sin that is in the world. Murder, anger, sexual perversion, greed, idolatry, all the like. But Noah... And his family were saved in the ark. So, so you get the picture. God's justice against sin, against immorality, is being poured out in the world. But there is one way of salvation. 
There is an escape from the sure destruction that God is going to bring. He had Noah build an ark. And you know what the New Testament says about Noah? Doesn't, doesn't remember him as a boat builder. It says Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And so you can imagine him warning the people alive in his day, there is a flood going to come because of all of the evil and bloodshed in the world. But God has made a way, and if you come into this ark, you put your trust in what God has said, you believe him that the rains are going to come, that he is going to destroy the world, you, you, you act out that faith by getting into the boat, you will be saved. He's pleading with them to enter in. But in the end, there are only eight. Eight who would enter into that boat. Eight people out of the whole world at the time. Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives. Baptism pictures our salvation from the waters of judgment as it, because as they were symbolic of God's wrath in the day of Noah's Ark, we pass through them when we go down and are raised in baptism. It's a picture of our being saved from God's judgment against sin because we have been cleansed from our sins in Christ. Number six, baptism is a seal. It's a seal. I was surprised one day and I was reading about Martin Luther in the uh, the 16th century reformer, if you're familiar with them, that when he was tempted, tempted both to sin and to doubt, he would often say to comfort himself, I am baptized. He would say this to assure himself that he was forgiven and that he was secure in Christ. Now, does that seem strange to any of you? I mean, when was the last time you were tempted and said to yourself, No, no, I'm baptized. Well, it's exactly the right thing to say, at least one of them, if you understand what baptism means. You see, baptism is a symbol of your being sealed and committed, even your being married or pledged to be married to Christ. And that's a, that's a good analogy, even though the marriage isn't finalized yet. You know, in ancient Israel, they didn't have engagements like we do today. They had betrothals. And often they're the same thing in our minds, but there's, they're really not. A betrothal was binding. In fact, it was as binding as the marriage itself. And to get out of the betrothal, it required a divorce. Well, the same is true for us. If you're a believer, you are pledged to be married to Christ, which will happen at the marriage supper of the Lamb when He returns. But in the meantime, we are bound to Him. And the symbol of this binding is baptism. And you say, well, okay, but how does that help me with temptation and doubt? Let me give you an example. When you're married, one of the symbols of that union is what? It's a ring. And so if you were being tempted to be unfaithful to your vows, you might, you might rub, your, uh, rub your ring in your hand and say, no, I'm married. You might say, I'm sealed to my wife or to my husband for better or for worse. And it comforts you to resist temptation. And when you fail, you're no less married than when you flourish. And if you doubt, I don't know if I'm, I'm married to my wife, well, take a look at the ring on your finger. 
it reminds you that your vows are holding. Now, of course, the ring, you understand, it doesn't make you married. If you take it off, the marriage isn't dissolved. And you can't just throw a ring on anyone's finger and be married to them. That would be terrible. <laughs> but the ring is a symbol of that marriage. And it reminds others that you're married. It reminds you that you are married. And it functions a very similar way to baptism. Baptism reminded Martin Luther that he belonged to Jesus Christ and was no longer under the sway or the mastery of the tempter. And even though he would sometimes doubt, he would look back at his baptism and say, No, I was sealed for Christ. And we can say the same thing. I was sealed in Christ so that I walk in new ways and I say no to temptation and I can resist doubt and we can say with Luther that I am baptized and sealed in Christ. Number seven, immersion. Immersion. It is the second line in our statement of faith, but I saved it for here for this reason. Everything I've said so far, all Christians would generally agree upon. Except for maybe some fringe groups, everyone believes that baptism is commanded, that it is the adding to the church, that it's to be done in the name of God rightly, that it's symbolic of our union with Christ, the cleansing of sin, of our sal and the seal of our salvation. But as to the mode of baptism, mode being how is it done, Christians begin to diverge. Some believe that it's okay to sprinkle, and others who maybe read their Bibles a bit more carefully, believe immersion is the correct way to do it. And we believe that immersion is the correct way to do it, and so I'm going to be telling you why I believe, and we believe that immersion is the correct way to do it. And if you are not so sure, let me try to convince you. Because we don't believe that it's the right way to do it because we want to pick fights. We believe that's the right way to do it because we believe the Bible shows it, that's what the word itself means. It's the example of the early church, universally without exception. So the word baptize comes directly into the English from the uh, Greek word baptizo. You see the, the clear connection between the words. And it means in every recorded instance in the Bible and outside of the Bible to submerge entirely. In fact, there's an ancient recipe for making pickles. And in it, it says the pickles are to be baptized, baptized in the brine. Now, this obviously cannot mean sprinkles. Second, every instance of baptism in Scripture is one of immersion. Jesus' baptism, uh, John at the River Jordan, Philip and the eunuch, all of them require a lot of water, right? not the handful that would be used for sprinkling. Lastly, the early church, in every recorded instance, they practiced baptism by immersion, totally submersing people into the water. There's, a, there's a, an ancient book called the Didache, and it's, uh, basically it was an instruction manual for pastors, and I think it was from the, from the second century. Very clearly, baptism is to be by immersion in the water, totally. The only exception being if someone was on their deathbed you could take water and pour it over them. But if it was at all possible for them to be baptized, they were to be baptized. 
uh, a church that was excavated, an early church from the, the 200s uh, was excavated. And in the church, they actually found a baptismal tank in the church of the size that would be required to submerse people into the water. Now, this really shouldn't come as any surprise given what baptism signifies. All of that symbolism, the being buried and rising again, at least visually, it's lost in sprinkling. And I'm not saying these things to argue. I'm saying these things because it's fact. Right? It's just true. The symbolism is lost. The word itself means immersed. The examples in Scripture are of immersion, and every serious scholar of the first few centuries agrees that the early church baptized by immersion. That's just the way it was. And so why sprinkling instead of immersion? It was a very difficult, uh, difficult to get an answer on this. So uh, I read quite a few historians trying to see what they had to say, and it seems that the answer is far more practical than spiritual. So point eight, infant baptism. This might not be a point about baptism, but a, a counterpoint. Sprinkling, as far as historians can tell, came into prominence with the rise of infant baptism, which should come as a surprise to absolutely nobody. Infants do not like to be immersed but why infant baptism? So they don't like to be immersed, but why would they start baptizing infants? Uh, really, it comes from a misunderstanding of the washing away of sins. Because for the, for the, from, the, from the 3rd century to the, to the 4th century, so that's starting in the year 200, believers would delay baptism because they thought that it washed away their sins, literally. And so by delaying it, they could be purer or cleaner when they died. There's a story of, of a very sick man. He was uh, lying on his deathbed, thought he was going to die, so he, he called for the, the priest to come and baptize him. Uh, and the priest had a couple of days' journey to get there, and on his way, the man recovered. And when the priest got there, he said, Oh, no, 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 I wouldn't dare be baptized now. I've recovered. And so it just it shows how he's thinking. Right? It makes logical sense. If baptism actually washes sins away, then I would, wouldn't I want to wait until I was on my deathbed to be baptized? That's not how it works, of course, but that's what they thought. However, after Augustine, maybe influenced by Augustine, but shortly after his time, uh, he was a very influential theologian in the 4th century, this was corrected. And after him, people believed that baptism added you to the covenant as one of God's people. Essentially, uh, being baptized in the minds of people, it made you a Christian. Again, not true, but that's what people thought. And so parents opted to have their children baptized as soon as possible, hence infant baptism. Now, of course, if you know the history at all, you know this is a gross oversimplification of it. And I apologize for that. We don't have time to, to cover it all. But, but if you've ever wondered where it started and just wanted, you know, the, the, the five minutes of church history version, this is it. And the reason why Christians thought that way, you wonder, well, why did they think that baptizing children made them Christians? Point nine. Baptism, like circumcision, is a sign of the covenant. We touched on this 
briefly already as baptism is a seal of believers or is a symbol of the seal. But baptism is a sign of the new covenant. And this is what people appeal to when they say we should baptize infants. All right, maybe you've wondered, how do denominations that baptize infants, how do they justify it? And, and maybe you did, like I did. You went and you got a, you know, a Westminster Confession of Faith and you took a look at the section on baptism. And as you were reading all of the verses that they went to, you went, how do they get this from the Bible? And you went to these verses and you said, all of these verses have to do with circumcision. None of them have to do with baptism. I am confused. Well, this is the reason. Here's the rationale behind it. In the Old Covenant, God's people were to circumcise their children, male children, on the eighth day after birth. There was a, a strict command. It was to be kept by every member of the covenant community, specifically the parents. And really, it was an expression of the faith of the parents. And so what circumcision represented was that these children were part of the covenant, part of the ethnic people of God, and they were part of the people of God because of their physical, ethnic ancestry. So parents in the covenant, children would be in the covenant. Circumcision, act of faith by the parents, bringing the children into the covenant in the Old Testament. That's what they would do. Now there is a strong correlation between baptism and circumcision. They signify the people of God. And so it's not difficult to understand someone saying, well, if circumcision in the Old Testament was the sign of the covenant and it was given to the Jews and to their children, then if baptism is the sign of the new covenant in the New Testament, doesn't it only make sense that the children of believers should be baptized? That's not hard to understand. And that's why some churches practice infant baptism. But there are some major differences between the Old Covenant and the New. I mean, for one, circumcision in the Old Testament was itself symbolic. It was uh, a symbolic of cutting off a way of life uh, in antithesis or against God. It was a symbol of cutting off of the flesh in order to be separate unto the Lord. That's what circumcision was even in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 10, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your hearts and be no longer stubborn. It was symbolic of submitting to God. Those in the flesh cannot please God, so cut off the flesh, literally. Uh, you have the same thing in Jeremiah 4, 4, Circumcise your hearts. Deuteronomy 36, Circumcise your hearts. Jeremiah 25, 26, God will punish those circumcised in flesh because they're not circumcised in heart. So even in the Old Testament, it was a picture of an inward reality. And in the New Covenant, one of the things that God says He will do through the prophets is that He will circumcise people in heart. He will do it. Everyone in the New Covenant is circumcised in heart. And you say, what's that mean? It means He would put the, the flesh, the sin, the guilt, that part of you that is prone to do what you know is wrong, that part of you that is hostile toward God, that part of you that prevented you from coming to Christ for however many years, God is going to put that away and cut it off. And then, after God cuts that off of the heart, a kind of spiritual circumcision, then you will be His people. And that's the shift you see. No longer will it be physical Israel who are the people of God, 
but those from every tribe and tongue and nation. And the circumcision they undergo is not physical, but spiritual. It happens, to use again biblical language, in the heart. Colossians 2.11 In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You say, well then, what is a spiritual circumcision? What, what, what's that? I'm, I'm not quite getting what the cutting off of the flesh of the heart is yet. Well, it's the tenth thing that baptism signifies. Baptism signifies that you have been born again. You've been born again. In John 3, Jesus is speaking with one of the religious leaders, Nicodemus, and he tells him that in order for someone to enter the kingdom of heaven, to be one of God's people, they must be born again. Nicodemus is confused. He begins to question Jesus, but then Jesus rebukes Nicodemus and tells Nicodemus, you should have known these things. These should not be questions in your mind. And he tells them, the, and the reason why Nicodemus should have known these things is because they're right there in the book of Ezekiel and the book of Jeremiah. In those books, God said in the New Covenant that he would take out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. Now, we've been talking about cutting off the flesh. The, the metaphor here kind of, kind of switches He's talking about a heart of stone now and a heart of flesh in terms of, of not flesh as in hostile to God, but flesh as in responsive and stone as in unresponsive. That's the, the metaphor here is that our hearts are by nature hard and stony like a statue. Right? Picture a statue here, a stone man, and you go up and you, you grab hold of the back of their arm, the statue. What's it going to do? It's not going to do anything because it's a statue. It's a stone. It's unresponsive. It can't respond to the, the pinch because a stone does not respond to stimuli. You can pinch it, poke it, kick it, prod it. doesn't matter. Push it over. Not going to react or respond. But if that statue were turned into a man and you were to go up and pinch him right there on the back of the arm as hard as you can, now he's going to howl. Why? Because he has been made sensitive. He has been made responsive to your prompting. And so when somebody is born again, God takes out the heart of stone that is unresponsive to him and unresponsive to his word, and he puts in a heart that is responsive now to him and to his word. And that's what it means to be born again. I mean, it's most of you, probably, at least a majority of you could think back to a time before you would consider yourself a Christian. And even though you had a Bible, maybe you went to church, maybe you knew and believed there was a God up there, none of those things had any real impact on you. It was like your heart was hard as a rock towards God. Because it was. But the Lord changed your heart so that you would be sensitive towards Him and you would respond towards Him and you would seek Him and you would want to know the Word. Whereas before you could not have cared less, now you want to please God. Before you lived as though He wasn't even real, now He is as real to you as the ground beneath your feet. A change happened. And Jesus says that change is being born again. In the Old Testament... The change was called circumcision or heart. 
Both are signs of their respective covenants, but it's not a one-to-one relationship. Circumcision is likened to what God does in the heart, not to baptism. Baptism is a picture of what already happened. Baptism is a picture, an outward manifestation of the change that took place in the heart. So baptism, in a way, is a picture, again, of the new birth. And if baptism is a sign of the covenant, then it should be given to newborns, newborn believers, because those are the members of the covenant community of Christ. And so to baptize infants gets the question wrong and right. Newborns should be baptized, but it's a spiritual birth. It's not a physical birth that makes someone a member of the new covenant. Baptism belongs to those who have placed their faith in Christ and been born again. Eleven, baptism is an expression of the faith we have placed in Christ. Baptism is an expression of faith. This is the most definite reason why we hold that baptism is only for those who have professed faith and do not baptize infants. Colossians 2 again, verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. I want you to notice some words in this passage. First, in which. What does in which refer to? In which refers to baptism. So put it in there because that's what it refers to. In baptism, you were raised through faith. You see how clear that is. What Paul is saying here is that when you come up out of the waters of baptism, which signifies your being raised with Christ, it's done through faith. You say, what's that mean? It means that baptism is an expression of the faith that we have, that we have died in Christ and will be raised by the power of God like Christ was. Baptism is the action that expresses the faith we have in our coming resurrection. The implication... Without faith, baptism is nothing more than getting wet. And it's not just in Colossians. It's in Galatians as well. Galatians 3, 26 and 27. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Faith is deeply woven into the meaning of baptism. Jesus, uh, in Jesus Christ, you are sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ, put on faith. Turn that around. Or put on Christ. It says, since you were baptized into Christ, therefore you are sons of God through faith. So baptism means, baptism means, if that's been kind of confusing to you, baptism means I have put on Christ and become a son of God in Him, in Christ, and all of that is done through faith. And I am expressing this faith and this hope through baptism. I have put on Christ. I have become a son of God in Christ. And all of that is accomplished through faith. Baptism is the expression of that faith. So baptism should never happen apart from faith. The faith of the one being baptized, not the faith of the parents. So 11 points on baptism and... Maybe you can add one more. We'll close with this. It's not really a point about baptism, but a question that always comes up. Is there such a thing as illegitimate baptism? Is there such a thing as a baptism that is illegitimate? We've looked at what it is. We've looked at the history of it, what it represents. 
we have, I hope, all of us a, a better understanding of what Christ is asking for when he commands us to be baptized. We've seen the symbolism of it, the significance of it. And one of the questions I know people always have, because they're going to ask me, people here are going to ask me through the week, I know it. Is my baptism legitimate? Or do I need to be baptized again? Which really is not baptized again, because if you're truly baptized, it never needs to be repeated. Well, first, is there even such a thing as illegitimate baptism? Well, the answer clearly has to be yes. For one, there are elements that have to be in place for baptism to be baptism. I mean, if you're out in the lake wrestling with your friends, and one of them grabs hold of you and dunks you underwater and pulls you back up, are you baptized? No. You went under the water and you came back up. Somebody did it. It's not baptism. Nobody disputes this, by the way. Why? Because certain things need to be in place for baptism to be considered baptism. Well, let's look at an example from Scripture of an illegitimate baptism. It's in Acts chapter 19, verses 3, 4, and 5. You can write it down if you don't want to turn there. But Acts chapter 19, verses 3, 4, and 5. Paul, he's in the city of Ephesus. There's a little church there. Paul has some questions for them. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? He says, in, Into what were you baptized? That's what he wants to know these people. What kind of baptism did you have? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So right here in Acts 19, we see there is such a thing as a baptism that is not Christian, even if it takes place in a church. There are certain necessary elements that make a baptism Christian. And if it, is, uh, if it is not Christian, if these elements aren't there, then it's not what Christ has commanded. This is why they, in Ephesus, in Acts, by the Apostle Paul, were baptized again. Right? Because what John the Baptist were doing and what Christ required were two different things, even though they would have looked identical. So it's possible to have your baptism not count. You see this right here in Scripture. There are two things in this passage and one that we've looked at already that will tell you whether or not your baptism is legitimate. One, your understanding of what baptism is. It's in verse 19. Paul tells them about Jesus. They have to have an understanding of what Christ has done. They have to understand exactly what baptism is. Two, in whose name is it done? And you can add to that, I think, as clear from Colossians 2.12 you must have had faith in Christ when it happened. These are necessary for true baptism, and, and genuine baptism does not need to be repeated. Now, I know some people may have convictions uh, in other ways, that baptism is a sign of the covenant and they're baptized as infants. And if that is your, your deeply held conviction, I'm not trying to trouble you or even convince you. Maybe I'm trying to convince you a little bit. But... Uh, how do you know if this is you? How do you know if the baptism that you underwent is legitimate? One, you understand what baptism represents, and not the fullness of it. 
I'm, I'm not, I don't mean you have to understand everything that I've been talking about for the last however long it's been. Thank you for your patience. But you know that this represents your union with Christ in his death. You at least know that. You know that you are being baptized in uh, and because of the gospel of Christ that they relate. And not the, not the fullness of it, not all the implications of it, not the, the significance of it or the extent of it, but you at least know this much, that you, you know the gospel that the baptism symbolizes. You know that this represents death, burial, resurrection with Christ. Because two, faith is necessary. Faith is necessary. You, you have to be a Christian for baptism to be legitimate. You, otherwise, it's, if, if baptism is an expression of faith and you were baptized without faith, then how can the baptism be anything more than the expression of something that was not true when it happened? Faith is necessary for baptism. You have to believe through faith that you have died in Christ and will raise like Him. You have to be born again. And so if you weren't a Christian... If you had no real faith in Christ when you were baptized in the past, you probably only got wet. This, uh, this does not bode well for infant baptisms. And last, it must be in Jesus' name. And by that, you remember point three, it has to be done with the right view of who God is. The triune God. So if you were baptized in Jesus' name... Was Jesus meant to mean the second person of the Trinity, divine and co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit? Or did it mean something else? If the name of Jesus meant something else, like one God who reveals himself in three different ways, or the, the Son of God, brother of Lucifer, or Jesus who is a created being, or Jesus the, the Michael the Archangel, if the God whose name you were baptized in was not the God of the Bible, then it was not a legitimate baptism. There has to be a knowledge of the gospel, faith in Christ, and the true God over it. Now you say, well, what about children? Maybe you want to know about your own, or maybe you want to know about yourself. You were baptized as a child. Listen, nothing changes. If you knew what it meant that you were being identified with Christ, you understood the gospel, and it was in the name of God rightly and you truly had faith and believed which many children can and have and you have nothing to worry about your, your baptism isn't invalid just because you were young but if those things were not present if those elements were not there those three necessary aspects of baptism it may not have been legitimate may not have been genuine. That doesn't matter if you're five or 500. And listen, if you have questions about your own baptism, as I'm sure some of you will after this, if you have questions about it, come and speak to me afterward. I would love to talk to you and help you to work through this and walk through this. And if you have never been baptized ever, you need to be. Go and talk to one of the elders. Go and talk to Daniel. Go and talk to uh, David at the end of the service. Don't, don't drag your feet on it. If you're a Christian, you've, you've confessed Christ and you've never been baptized, failing to do so is serious. 
It's a serious breach of what Christ has called us to do. And it's a sign of, of a stubborn and a disobedient heart. And I know this because I went 10 years myself as a Christian dragging my feet. And that's the reason why I dragged them. Right? Stubborn and didn't want to be singled out as waiting so long because I knew it was wrong. 10 years is far too long. So don't, don't be like I was. And don't delay. Don't be ashamed to identify with Christ. And don't be too proud and say, what will people think? Don't worry about what people think. Worry about what God will think and you'll do well. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for baptism and the comfort it is to us the symbolism it contains. It is an expression of Your love for us that You would use it to strengthen our faith in Christ. To strengthen our hope in resurrection. To remind us that we are united with You in death and will raise with You to life. That You have sealed us for Yourself and added us to the community of believers. Your bride, the church. I pray for anyone here who has questions, that they would get those questions resolved so that they could have a clear conscience before you, so that they would honor you, and so that they would do what you have called us to do, be baptized. I pray for anyone who has never done this, that they would see the urgency of it and the necessity of it and the comfort of it, and that they would come to be baptized. We ask this in Jesus' name. Get glory for your name. Get glory for your Son through the public proclamation of those who belong to you that they are united with Jesus in His death, burial, and resurrection. Thank you, Father. In your name we pray. Amen.